So John chapter 15, starting at verse 26. When the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you about this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Thank you, Millie. Folks, uh, welcome. It's great to have you along. Oop, if you're new or visiting today, my name's Tim. I'm one of the uh, pastors here of Walker Evangelical Church. It's great to have you along. As Casper said, we're in our seri a sermon series on our statements of belief. First things first, what we believe here. Um, and it's great to have you uh, about for that. Um, youth Church? Holidays, of course. Just testing. Um, <clears throat> correct. Sherry, top of the class. Well done. Um, they should have, uh, yeah, whereabouts do they get them from, Mike? Up the back, if you don't have one yet, there's a little outline up there for you to go on with youth, youth guys and gals. Rightio, keep your Bibles open at that John section because I'm going to be dipping in and out of, in around that area. But um, before we get there, I don't know about you, but I love history. Anyone history buffs? Anyone like history? Uh, go on, yeah, well done. I like church, I like church history especially. I think it's interesting to sort of read and listen into. And if you ever start reading about church history, one of the first things you'll notice is the number of controversies that have happened down through the ages. Right, you'll find heaps of Barneys and Blues and quibbles and squabbles. And I don't say that as a, necessarily a bad thing. The reason being that the truth matters. And so when people disagree with each other, they need to hammer that out. And division often comes as the result. It's inevitable and it's not necessarily negative. In fact, here's a couple of examples that you may or may not be aware of. In about 325 AD, there's a chap named Arius. He decided to challenge the idea about whether Jesus was God or not which led to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, basically a bunch of blokes in pawnee hats talking turkey on theology. 
Uh, and they came up with this idea. Now, hang on, let's think about this. Let's look at the word. Let's decide what it says. And they come up with a statement. You might have heard of the Nicene Creed, affirming Jesus' full divinity. He's God in the flesh. Terrific. A couple of years later, there's a Pelagian, Pelagian controversy, 5th century stuff. A bloke by the name of Pelagius decided, hang on, about that original sin thing. Adam, did we all fall in Adam or was Adam's sin his own and therefore everyone is born in a similar moral uh, uh, neutrality? That then, let's, think, let's, let's work that out. Comes along the uh, Council of Carthage, 1418. Apparently pointy hats were no longer in vogue and um, they hammered that out. Let's work this through. 30 years later, there's another dispute. Nestorius was the chap this time round. Not now whether Jesus was divine, but was he actually human? Here's another interesting idea. Apparently, as we see here, pointy hats back in vogue. I don't know what's going on here. All it proves, folks, is that fashion is cyclic. Right? It just keeps coming back and around and around and around. But they had this idea, 451, Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian Council where they hammered out, biblically speaking, what do we understand about Jesus? No, no, he has two natures. He is fully God. He is fully man. All I'm saying here, throughout the ages, controversy after controversy, we could look at more, but they're important controversies. We've touched on some of these, you realize, in our doctrinal series already because they are so pivotal. But for the most part, I want to say these controversies, they really are controversies that belong to church history. By that I mean they feel like they're a long way removed from us personally. The dust has settled on many of these issues. They no longer feel close or even controversial to our experience or our expression of faith as Christians for the most part. In fact, if you disagreed with this, you probably wouldn't be here today, those three things in particular. But these last two doctrines that we'll cover in our series are fresher, if you will. They present doctrines that many well-meaning Christians, myself included, still feel a little bit uneasy about in terms of the way other Christian brothers and sisters think, speak and act about these issues. The argy-bargy is still ongoing in some ways. They're the freshest controversies of church history. They're just present. I'm, of course, talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the church. We're going to deal with the Holy Spirit today, the church after Easter, but as we start always, let's pray and ask God to help us. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, we do ask that you would be with us today, that we would see your truth, that we would love your truth, that we would live in light of the truth to glorify Jesus in all things. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us speak about you today, think about you today, in line with your truth revealed. And by the words that you've inspired to be written, help us to come to a greater, a deeper, and a more passionate understanding of you in our lives as you point us to Jesus and as you equip us to love and serve each other for your glory too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I want to pick up on a couple of aspects about the Holy Spirit from our statements of beliefs. You should have them there in your outline. I want to humbly sort of state and defend these uh, as the best expression um, of biblical faithfulness on the topic of the Holy Spirit. No small feat. Often over and against, you may be aware, of some other ideas put forward in other Christian circles. Now, you may disagree with some or all of these statements uh, presently. That's okay. You're still welcome to be a, a member here, a regular member here at church with us. I hope you find more agreement than disagreement. But I put these things up front because I don't want anyone here to be uninformed or ignorant about what the Bible says about the Spirit, what the Spirit says about the Spirit. 
And I don't want anyone to be shocked or surprised when we teach about God in this way, because again, it's thoroughly based in God's Word. So there's three relatively sort of simple questions I want to ask and answer this morning with God's Word in hand, guiding us as we do. You'll see them in your outline. One, two, three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? There's question number one. What is His role? Question number two. And what difference ought that make to you personally? That's question number three. Now, the first question there, the Holy Spirit, who is He? Well, I hope you realize that actually part of the answer is embedded in the question. He's a he. Now, that seems a bit like, eh, what? <laughs> no, no, this is significant. You'll constantly notice with your eyes open as you read the Bible, as you read the scriptures, if you read our statements of belief, the Spirit of God is referred to as a he. This is grammatically significant as well. Let me geek out for a minute. This is grammatically significant as well because the word for spirit in the, in the Greek language is a neuter term. It's neither masculine or feminine. Right? Anyone here speak a second language? Do you know what I mean when I say masculine and feminine nouns? Yeah, okay. So it means your, your, your grammar changes based on whether the word is a masculine word or a feminine word and you'll use the grammar and the, the words to it. reflect that. Spirit in Greek is neuter. It's not masculine, it's not feminine. But the Bible writers always use the masculine grammar when referring to the Holy Spirit. They very deliberately use he, not it, when referring to the Spirit. They very deliberately use masculine articles. It's not, yeah, articles when, it's, it's, it's a complicated grammar thing. They, they use, they deliberately break the rules of Greek grammar. Deliberately, to make a point. And the point is not anything to do, it's not a comment on gender in any way. It's not a comment on male superiority or feminine inferiority. No, nothing of that. The point they are making, the point they are underlining, the error they want you to avoid, which is still common in some people's thinking, is that the Holy Spirit isn't it. They don't want you to think that because he's not. The error that some people think of or make is that the Holy Spirit is some kind of impersonal, impersonal force, more like um, energy, more like a system of some sort operating as a simple extension of something else rather than having personal or distinctive qualities of his own. In practice, it might look like thinking about the Holy Spirit as something like uh, gravity or electricity or gale force winds. That is, you can see and experience the effects of this force, but it's completely impersonal. Gravity doesn't think or respond. The wind doesn't direct itself. It simply emanates from other causes and affects other things in kind. Some people think of the Holy Spirit like this, as an it, as a thing, as a force. That may be you. But biblically, it's not true. The Holy Spirit is a person. I don't mean a human. I mean a personal, spiritual entity. He's the third member of the triune God. He's co-equal, co-eternal of one being or essence with the Father and the Son. And the three are all the one God. We spoke about that in week two. If you'd like to go back and think about that, listen to that one. But it's the first point I want you to see here today about the Holy Spirit. It's that he's a he. That's why I ask who is the Holy Spirit, not what is the Holy Spirit. Because he's not a thing, he's substantial. He's active. You can grieve him, Paul will say in Ephesians 4.30. You can lie to him, or you can at least try to lie to him. Ananias and Sapphira did it in, uh, Sapphira did it in Acts 5. Check out how that worked. 
All these are examples of straight out of the, of the Bible that underline the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about this. You can't grieve electricity. You can't lie to gravity. Again, you can try, but the consequences will have precisely no effect either on you or on gravity. Allow me to demonstrate. I can fly! No, it didn't work. It has no effect. Nothing changed about me or gravity. But the Holy Spirit is different. He's real. He's personal. He's operative. He's God. It's what we're keen for everyone who walks through the door at WEC to see and understand about the Holy Spirit. It's in that first half of the statement of belief on your outline. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Father and the Son. He's gone. The second thing I want you to notice about who the Holy Spirit is actually sort of starts to bleed over into answering the question about what he does or what his role is. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's, the, he's God who lives in you, walks alongside and communes with his people. You can see that in the second half of the first statement. The Holy Spirit indwells all true believers. Now, that same thing is said in John's Gospel, just a few verses prior to the section that Millie read out for us. In fact, in John 14, 17, it'll come up on your screen, as Jesus begins to tell his disciples about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, also called the Counselor, equally could be translated as like the Advocate or the Helper, who will come from God the Father, continue the work of God the Son. Verse 17 says of God the Spirit, He will live with you and will be in you. Now, just think about that for a second. That's incredibly significant. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the unique and guaranteed reality of every genuine follower of Jesus. That means there's no first or second class Christians. There's no dud seats on the Christian Express. Because God the Spirit personally lives in, comforts, advocates, helps his people. Think about that for a second. I say that over and against the common idea or the misheld idea that somehow there's a, a, an extra second helping of the Spirit, that some people can not have the Spirit. You need an, no, no, there's no first-class Christianity. If, you, if you're a follower of Christ, God's Spirit lives in you. That's massive. He advocates and helps his people. But how does he help? Helps them to do what exactly? That's the next question we need to ask. What does he help them to do? Why is it that God the Son guarantees his disciples that God the Father would gift them and indwell them by God the Spirit? And not just for the disciples, but then he would talk about for his followers later. Well, here we move more deliberately into that second question. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Now, I've said this a dozen times through this sermon series. I'll say it again now. There's no possible way that I'll deal with everything. I will be able to say everything necessary even about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. By definition, I am forced to gloss over or even leave untreated some significant aspects of the Holy Spirit. But I want to focus in on a couple of big ideas that really help to frame an understanding of the Spirit's work, precisely because, sadly, I believe these are the issues that well-intentioned Christians are either confused about or determined to confuse others about. There are some people, what I mean by that is there are some people who claim to be Christian teachers who will hold a Bible in one hand and then teach things that completely contradict that same Bible. And the topic of the Holy Spirit is one of those doctrines that has more than its fair share of, 
I want to say deceivers and the deceived. Deceivers, those, there are folk, let me be blunt here, there are those who willingly, knowingly teach or believe untrue things about the Holy Spirit because it seems to profit them in some tangible way. And there are the deceived. There are those who've bought into these lies, often through a combination, I want to suggest, of either poor judgment, lack of discernment, and because they think it will profit them in some tangible way. And if you want any examples of this, turn your television on to any of the TV prosperity teachers. Unfortunately, there's far too many examples of those. They're the ones who will promise that if you invest in their ministry, then God will exponentially return that generosity in kind, in dollar values. Essentially, it's the old give-to-get theology. I was part of a, a church service one time where the chap was actually speaking about this, the exponential, what do you call it, threefold, sevenfold, somethingfold, uh, grace of God to return. And the lady in the crowd actually put her hand up and said, is that before tax or after tax? I wish I was joking. What's the answer? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's the answer? Get behind me, Satan. Um, or just read five pages of any of the number of apparent Christian books that promise the reader health, wealth and prosperity as a certain follow-on from an expression of faith in Christ. Or who guarantee that they can teach you to harness or unlock the Holy Spirit's power in your life personally. I mean, just look up the number of book titles in that vein and read the blurbs. Hogwarts for Christians, I call it. The ones written by the deceivers, all the deceived, will be all about the personal benefits for the believer, often in terms of the miraculous and the tangential, you know, the, the beneficial, you know, cold hard before tax, after tax, I can't remember, uh, benefit. And often, more often, in direct opposition to the Spirit's own declaration of his role as we read in the Bible that he inspired to be written, as spoken in detail about God the Son. So what's the primary role of the Holy Spirit, friends? Well, it's summed up there in our point two of our statement of beliefs. It's to point people to Jesus and to bring glory to Jesus. That is the chief end of the Holy Spirit's role. It's not to make much of individual Christians by granting them their every wish or promising them personal fulfillment in every area of life. The Holy Spirit's role is not even to make much of himself. His role is to make much of Jesus. It's, it's, if you like, it's kind of like the royal trumpeters that you might see as a king or a queen arrives at a procession. Have you ever watched the, a royal procession? Have you ever seen one on television? Surely you would at some point. No one's watching the trumpeters as the queen walks in. No one's watching them. They're the ones that are doing all the work. They're the ones that are making all the noise, but their aim isn't to draw attention to themselves, but to someone else. So it is with the Holy Spirit. Often we talk about him as the self-effacing member of the Trinity, the one who is not drawing attention to himself, but rather pointing to the Son, who is pointing to the Father, who is pointing to the Son. We heard this in our passage today, John 16, 13 to 15. Quick side note, by the way, really quick one. Some of the best places to go, I think, to understand more about the Holy Spirit are really found here in John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 17. These are the chapters that record that the conversation between Jesus as he's preparing his disciples for his upcoming death. They're obviously grieved by that, and to comfort them, he speaks at length about the Holy Spirit. 
he speaks at length about what that will mean for them and what that will mean for after them and actually what that will mean for us. So although I'm just going to cherry pick bits of that today, please read John 14 to 17 if you want to get a handle on who the Spirit is and what his role is in your life. Please do that. But let me go back to John 16, 12 to 15. Jesus, comforting his grief-stricken followers, says, I have much more to say to you. More than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I have said the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now, do you hear that? The Spirit's intention is to bring glory to Jesus. It's to work in unison with the Father and the Son to make known the universal lordship of Christ over all as God. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine, Jesus says. And the Spirit's role is to make that known to them. That's his overarching intention to bring glory to Christ. But how does he do this? How will he do this? Well, this is where I want to sort of break into a couple of different points. In fact, you'll notice them on your outline. I want to deal with them in two sort of sub-points. I was really hoping for a third, but time will beat me. I know that. I want to talk about these in terms of illumination and sanctification. Fancy church words. You know I love them. I'm going to explain them. The one I've left out, if I can just mention it, and I think it's one that often comes up in Christian circles. It's the idea of the Spirit's role and the giftings of the spiritual gifts is often how we talk about it. Um we'll see very quickly that the Spirit gifts people differently and for the benefit of the, of the good of others. Not for personal fulfillment, not for self-aggrandizement, but for the sake of building God's church, for loving other person-centered service. Hopefully you are at Bible study this week. Hopefully you're able to dig into that a little bit more. That's why I'm going to not deal with that in this sermon. But if you want to talk more about that, please do. Illumination and sanctification are the things I want to talk about. What do I mean by this? Well, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by illuminating people to the truth about him. We've picked up that language of illumination in statement three there. What it means is the Holy Spirit helps people to see the truth about Jesus and like a light shining in the darkness, he illuminates or he reveals things about Jesus that people will otherwise miss. Chief among them is the universal truth bomb that Jesus is God. That he's the one, he's one with his Father, as we've already heard. Everything belongs to God, and that's everything. And therefore, everything belongs to Jesus. And the Spirit's role is to illumine that, to testify to this truth, and make it apparent to the hearts and minds of all of God's people. You'll see that, John 15, 26. It'll flash up on the screen. You can read it for yourself. But get this. No one, no one comes to that understanding or belief about Jesus naturally. No, no one, though there is plenty of historical evidence available to us that Jesus is absolutely God in the flesh, and though there was ample physical and real-time evidence for the people in the first century that Jesus was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, no one is able to come to a full and fitting apprehension of this, much less know how to respond in action, except that God illumines them by his Holy Spirit. 
God's word makes this plain over and over and over again in several places through several people over several centuries. He constantly is talking about through the prophets the need of people for new hearts and new minds to genuinely trust, follow and live for him. And that ability, that recognition of Jesus is Lord, it's not naturally acquired. It is supernaturally gifted. That is, you can't think your way to faith in Christ. There's nothing in you or in me that is naturally oriented towards trusting in Jesus. No, the fall made sure of that. In fact, we fell, we turned our backs from God. We didn't just separate ourselves from God, we turned away from him. There's nothing there that if we can just ignite in ourselves, the fire of faith will spontaneously birth force. No. In fact, we've heard this over and over in recent weeks. Everyone born from Adam onward, dead in sin by nature under God's wrath. Ephesians 2. So much so that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth, John 14, 17, Jesus says... The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But press in, gentle listener, because Jesus has more to say. What else does he say? But you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. Friends, here is the hope of illumination, of seeing the truth about Jesus. It's not within our natural capacity Neither more can we lasso the Holy Spirit and force him into our lives, but God generously, graciously, and supernaturally gifts his spirit to his people so that they can know and love and live out the reality Jesus is Lord. It brings me to the second point, the second sub-point here in your outline about the role of the Holy Spirit. I've used the fancy theological word sanctification. What really that word means is exactly what Chris said in the kids' talk. It's growing people more like Jesus. That's the Spirit's job. It speaks to that radical transformation in a person's life. The Holy Spirit-inspired reorientation of a sin-sick rebel... Now towards God in heart, soul and mind. Because now suddenly you're convinced that Jesus is Lord and that has an ultimate bearing on every aspect of your life. This truth, when perceived rightly, becomes the all-surpassing, most pressing, important paradigm for how you live life. And this transformation, this ongoing work of sanctification is actually the, outwork, uh, sorry, the outward evidence of the inward illumination by God's Spirit in a person's life. Let me put that another way. People often ask me, how do I know I've got the Holy Spirit living in me? How do I know if I'm a genuine Christian or not? How do I know if I'm an authentic follower of Jesus? Have you ever wondered that question, friends? Either out loud to somebody else, maybe just even in your head. Friends, you should wonder that question. There's no more important question to ask or answer for you personally. The fate of your eternity hangs on it. Don't leave that to the side. But what's the answer? It's not just the fact that someone says they believe Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.5. Did I put that in the slides? I can't remember. Look it up and see. It tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that the mere utterance of the phrase confirms the Holy Spirit's presence in a person's life. I can teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. 
No, rather, it's the spirit-fueled concern, desire and effort to live in line with the statement, Jesus is Lord. That is the evidence of the Spirit's work. And that doesn't mean that genuine Christians never sin again. But genuine Christians, authentic followers of Christ, don't sin comfortably anymore. Genuine followers of Jesus can't ignore the sin in their lives and they can't live in settled patterns of sin or disobedience to Jesus. It's because the Holy Spirit in them says, this is not right. This is not what we're about now. And it's the Holy Spirit then that convicts people of sin and causes them to repent, hopefully quickly, and to keep trusting Jesus And to keep looking to Jesus to know and be assured of their peace with God. That's his role. Indulge me for a second. I know you will. You haven't got an option. I've got the microphone. Um, And I'm not afraid to use it. Let me give you a personal illustration. All right, Many of you will know this. I grew up in a Christian home, a loving Christian family. My mum and dad were believers before I can remember. We grew up going to church. I knew lots about Jesus. Even readily identified him as Lord. You know, give me a test on this. God, Jesus, he's God in the flesh. Yeah, tick. And you know what? That didn't change in my childhood. It didn't change through my teenage years. It actually even didn't change into my early adulthood. I still knew and I still believed and I still professed Jesus was Lord. I was even willing to identify, self-identify as a Christian when I was working at the abattoir. That's not for the faint-hearted. Bunch of rough and tumble guys and gals with sharp knives and you say that you're a Christian? Man, that doesn't go down well. Like a lead balloon. Anyways... Looking back honestly to those moments, I wasn't a genuine spirit-filled Christian. Those were just words. Now, I knew them to be true. I believed them to be true in theory. But I was both unable and unwilling to let them shape my life. I somehow was able to feel comfortable to claim Christ as saviour And then equally comfortable to disregard him, to disobey him and to dishonour him in every other aspect of my life. I drank like a fish, I swore like a sailor, readily held opinions that defied God's intention for humanity. And just genuinely, generally rather, I operated as though I was the master and commander of my own life, my own time, my own efforts. In other words, I lived indistinguishable from every other godless pagan around me. But I had a Bible on my bedside table. I was a contented hypocrite of the highest order. And that is not, and that cannot be, genuine, spirit-filled Christianity. Because his intention is to sanctify you. His intention is is to bear fruit in your life, to transform you in increasing measure into Christ-likeness so that your life would bring honour and glory to Jesus through trusting obedience. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get that. We read this too in our section for us today in John. In fact, just a little bit before, John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, You will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Later in that same chapter, verses 23 and 24, he says, I just lost that one. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then further along again, go to chapter 15. I mean, you can have a look through this for yourself. Chapter 15, 1 to 16. I've got, I think I've got 1 to 5 on the screen for you. Jesus continues as he talks about obedience as being the evidence of the fruit in the life of a Christian, as a, of a follower, of a disciple of Christ. The, the evidence of fruit, not as the means by which they are saved or spirit-filled, but as the evidence of the fact that they are at peace with God and spirit-filled. So my question is, is that you? The question must be asked and you must answer, is that you? Is there evidence of the Spirit's work growing in you? A disdain for sin, a deep desire for Christ-likeness, and a thoroughgoing trust that despite your failing in both of those first two areas, that Jesus is still your sole source of peace and assurance before God. That wasn't me for the first 28 years of my life until statement three happened. (laughs) Until God, by his spirit, illuminated me. He illumined my heart. He woke me up. It's more like the matrix moment. You get unplugged from the system and you realize a different reality suddenly. That's been there the whole time and you didn't realize. He woke me up to the enormity of the truth about Jesus, not as an act of my volition, but as a sovereign and surprising gift of grace. And friends, he, he continues to grow me, to transform me in line with his word by the power of his spirit. Clearly, there's a bit of work left to do. And it includes disciplining me. It includes calling me to repentance often. My question is, is that you? Is that you? Because there is no genuine Christianity without it. This brings us to our last and final question, the outline, folks. What difference ought it make personally to you sitting there today? What difference is this, all this talk about the Holy Spirit? What difference ought it make to you personally sitting in the audience? And the answer will depend on whether or not you're already a Christian. See, if you're a Christian here today already, then the implications are massive. The Holy Spirit is God living with you and in you to sanctify you and transform you, to be more like Jesus and to bring glory to him through your life. Don't waste that. Don't waste that. Don't ignore that. Don't treat that with contempt. Don't fall into the trap, I want to say, that sometimes evangelicals like us fall into where we're so suspicious and confused about all things spiritual that we dare not think or speak of the Holy Spirit. You know what that looks like? It leads to those sort of jabs about evangelicals being the frozen chosen. I don't know, I think it's funny. People who are so scared to embrace the reality of God's supernatural work in your life, you just, gosh, I don't want to move just in case someone thinks I'm demonic. People are too scared to embrace the reality of God's supernatural work in your life to grow and guide you. So we spend most of our time stiff and motionless like a deer in headlights. Don't do that, brothers and sisters. Hear me right. Limiting principle about to come up here that doesn't mean falling off the horse in the other direction into what i want to call the undiscerning blind emotionalism or baseless spiritual excitability that is often present in many charismatic circles of christianity if you've got the frozen chosen at one end of the continuum then often it's the happy clappies at the other no no don't make either mistake don't fall off the horse either direction 
Rather, Christians, brothers and sisters, trust God's spirit, relish his presence with and in you, and with sober-minded judgment, keep in step with the transformative work of the spirit in your life as he leads you by his word to glorify Christ through obedience. And praise him for it. (laughs) Praise him for it often. That is a massive gift. You cannot buy that at Amazon. And if you're here today, friends, and you're not yet a Christian, the implication is likewise massive and yet relatively simple. (laughs) The implication is stop denying the Holy Spirit. The implication is stop pretending that it doesn't matter that Jesus is Lord. Stop believing that you can continue to live your life your way, ignoring his universal kingship without cost or consequence to yourself. It will not end well for anyone who lives and dies on the wrong side of, the, on the wrong side of Jesus because they've failed to actually listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And hear this, you can do nothing to change that yourself, but God can, and God does. So let me ask you personally, if that is you, let me ask you personally, do you realize the need for the Holy Spirit's illumination in your life so that you might finally see and trust and live out Jesus' lordship personally, radically? Do you still see Christ and see him as through a fog, a haze, of I'm pretty sure there's something pretty significant there and I can't yet make it out? Do you realize your need of the Spirit's optics? Just see that with clarity. Do you desire that? If so, that may already be the evidence of God's Spirit transforming you, changing your heart and mind. Don't give up. Keep digging in. Keep coming along to church. Keep reading God's word. Keep wrestling this out with the other Christians. Because whether or, God, whether or not God turns a light on suddenly or gradually, I don't know if he's got a dimmer switch on some people, it's just what he turns it up a little. Regardless of whether that is going to happen quickly or slowly, you need to keep your eyes open for that moment. And I want to pray that it's today. I want to pray that it's today. As always, hit me up afterwards if you'd like to talk more about that. But let me pray. Let me pray for all of us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, generously gifted to those whom are yours, you God, living with us and in us. Father, help Christians here to keep in step with your Spirit, to relish his presence in our lives, to follow his lead with sober-minded judgment as we listen and obey his word and live and trust and honour and glorify Jesus above all else. And for those here who have not yet put their trust in you, For those here who think that they have, even, but in reality have not come to understand or love or live spirit-filled lives of trust and obedience, of repentance and faith, Father, we ask that you would illumine their hearts now by your Holy Spirit. Please, that they might realize the enormity of your grace to them expressed through Christ and that from this day onward would grow in likeness of him who has saved by the power of your Spirit. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.